You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields once again. We're so glad that you are with us this Sunday morning. If you're staying in here with us, would you please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John? So think New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four Gospels is the fourth one. Gospel of John chapter 16, and that's where our text will come from this morning. Let's begin by reading our text from the Gospel of John chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. Jesus said to them, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this he says, that a little while and you will not see me, and a little while and you will see me, because I'm going to the Father? So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, and so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What is meant by saying a little while and you will see me? You will not see me in a little while and then you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has come into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of me, the Father, or ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that this morning we get to consider it, we get to study it, Lord, we get to apply it to our lives, and we pray that as we do this, Lord, as we study these words, as we consider them, Lord, would you do that work of giving us understanding and application, Lord, that we might be changed by it, and that we might leave this place with a whole new trajectory for our lives, with a whole new motivation for living. Lord, we ask that you would fill us today with the hope that gives joy, and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So we are currently in the season of Advent. Advent is the four weeks leading up to Christmas. That's why we have the wreath out right now. We light a candle each week building up until Christmas. And the word Advent, it comes from the Latin phrase Adventus Domini, which simply means the coming of the Lord. And historically, this is a time when Christians for for many years, centuries, have set aside this season to remember and to celebrate the coming of Jesus into the world. And this this is an important point. We remember his coming, so we look back to his first coming as a baby in Bethlehem, but we also look forward to his second coming when he will come to rule and reign as king over an eternal kingdom. So for Advent this year, what we're doing is we're doing a special series, which begins today. Uh, It's a special series for the whole month of November, or December, where, what am I talking about? Okay, it's the whole month of December including Christmas Eve. So you heard about Christmas Eve service. We'll be doing that too. So for the whole month of December, our series is called Joy to the World. And of course, it's named after that very famous hymn, which we just sang. And and in this series, we're going to be focusing on how the gospel brings joy into our lives that nothing and no one can take away from us or destroy. So a few interesting things about this hymn, Joy to the World, just because it's the title of our series. 
Uh, it was written in 1719 by a man named Isaac Watts. But I want to tell you a few things that you might not know about the song Joy to the World. Number one, did you know this song was never intended to be a Christmas song? It was never originally intended to be a Christmas hymn. So we tend to think of Joy to the World as kind of the quintessential Christmas hymn. In fact, I even heard something, you know, you hear the tune of it. And, you know, even if you don't hear the words, it makes you think about Christmas. But if you look at the words of the song, it's not actually about Christmas. I don't want to ruin Christmas for you. But think about the words of the song. And let me just tell you, they're not about Christmas. What they are about is Advent in this sense. Remember we said that Advent is all about looking back to Jesus' first coming and looking forward to his second coming. That song is about Jesus' second coming. It was written by Isaac Watts. It's based on Psalm 98. And he wrote it based on his you know, thinking through what the Bible says about what will happen when Jesus comes again, when Jesus returns and sets all things right and writes what is wrong in this world. And like we said, that's what Advent is about, looking back on the one hand to how God came into this world, the incarnation, God took on human flesh, became one of us in order to save us, but also looking forward to that time when he will come again and he will set right all that is wrong. And isn't that the desire of our hearts? Isn't that why when you sing that song, it just causes you to rise up and be like, yes, that is it. That is what my heart longs for. That's what I want. Second thing about that song that you may not know is that originally it was set to a different tune and the tune was not as good. Let me just say that. Like you can search YouTube, go for it. It's, it's just, it's not as good. Uh, Joy to the World, it has this right iconic melody that just makes us think about Christmas, but that's not the way it was originally written or sung. Isaac Watts wrote that song, and then over a hundred years later, somebody else came back, and they had written a melody, that, that melody that we now think of, and they didn't have words for their melody, and somebody suggested to this writer, this composer, hey, there's this other song that has really good lyrics, not great music. What if we just kind of, you know, copy and paste into your, your uh, tune, and the rest is history. That's how we got the song in the way it is now. But this theme of finding joy by looking forward to the hope that we have in the gospel, that is what our text today is all about. Today's message is titled, your sorrow will turn into joy. And here's what we see in this, in this section. Your sorrow will turn into joy. First of all, we see what this joy is. We're going to talk about some characteristics and some aspects of this joy that's talked about in this text by Jesus. So what is this joy? Secondly, we're going to talk about what this joy does, what the effects that it has on us, uh, that this joy has if you have it. And then finally, we're going to talk about how to get it. So what it is, what it does, and how to get it. Psalm 30, verses 4 through 5, say something really interesting. Here's what they say. They say, Sing praises to the Lord, you his saints. Give thanks to his holy name, for weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Right? So let me ask you, how many of you, that pretty much describes your life? Every day, no matter how you went to bed, no matter how sad or unhappy you were when you went to bed, you just spring out of bed with a smile on your face, right? Just super happy. And you just kind of float through the day like you're on a cloud, right? Your feet don't even touch the ground. All of yesterday's worries and concerns are forgotten. And you just hit the ground and you just have this great smile on your face every morning. I mean, at night you cry yourself to sleep, but every morning you wake up super happy with a smile on your face. How many of you, you're like, that is my life. And I mean, isn't that what this verse is saying? That if you're a Christian, that's how it's supposed to work. No matter how sad you are at night, you're gonna wake up every day with a smile on your face, super happy. 
I think that all of us can attest to the fact that it doesn't always work that way. Uh, I was thinking about my kids. When I wake them up, they don't usually wake up with a smile. It's usually with a groan or maybe even a shout, right? Like, um, and sometimes, right, I myself, I wake up more of like with a grumble and a complaint. And I think it happens as you get older and it gets harder and harder to move out of the bed, right? Like sometimes you, you go to bed with problems and you wake up with the same problems, right? Isn't that true? Like, and your problems are still there. And um, sometimes you don't even want to get out of bed because you know that on the other, you know, once your feet hit the floor, you're going to have to deal with those same things that you had to deal with the day before. There's some tough stuff out there waiting for you in your workplace or in your family life. Um, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. This has happened to me, where I'll go to bed happy, but I'll wake up in the morning and I'll be really upset, but I don't know what I'm upset about, right? And like, I'll be angry at my wife and she doesn't know why I'm angry and I don't even know why I'm angry. And then I'm angry that I don't know why I'm angry. And she's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, I don't know, but I'm pretty upset about it. And so if, if that's what this verse is saying, right? Like, that to be a Christian, that no matter what's going on in your life or what's going on in the world, you should just bounce out of bed every morning with a smile on your face. It just doesn't seem to match with reality. And I actually don't think that's what this verse is saying at all. I think what this verse is saying is rather this. What this psalm is telling us is this. If you are a child of God, then you will receive a joy that is so great that it will overcome and overwhelm even the deepest of sorrows. So if you're a child of God, then you will receive a joy which is so great that it will overcome even the greatest of sorrows. And for a Christian, here's the other thing it means, that sorrow is a momentary thing. It's a temporary thing. Sorrows are temporary, but joy will always have the last word for the Christian person. That's what this is saying. So what is this joy that's offered to us as Christians and how can we get it? Let's begin by considering our text. Here's what's going on. Here's the context. We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 16. Jesus has just told his disciples something that they do not really want to hear. Um, he's just told them that the time has come for him to leave them and to go away. After three years of being together, every day, imagine this, eating together, sleeping in the same place, traveling together, during which time he's teaching them and instructing them and training them. And after three years of every day, Jesus not only being their teacher, but now he has become their friend. And he's not just a friend. He's more than just a friend. Jesus is the one in whom they have placed all of their hopes and all of their, they've put all their eggs in one basket, you could say. They've left everything behind to follow him because they believed that he was the one, right? The one that they've been waiting for, the Messiah who God promised that he would send, the the king who will reign over an everlasting kingdom and will liberate them from all forms of oppression. And so they viewed themselves, these disciples, they view themselves as like, we got in on the front end of something huge, right? They, they were just simple fishermen and, and peasants and workers. Only a few of them had any kind of education or training. And here they were, simple people, and yet they had gotten in on the front end of something, something really good. And pretty soon, Jesus is going to become king, and they're going to be part of his cabinet, right? They're going to on his right hand and his left hand and they're excited they're looking forward to that and they have these visions of grandeur and why wouldn't they just a few days before what we read here Jesus had entered the city of Jerusalem to great fanfare basically a ticker tape parade people had torn off palm branches and and they were laying them on the ground creating a red carpet if you will they were waving them you know the palm being a symbol of liberation for the Jewish people and they were saying Hosanna to him who comes in the name of David right they said the son of 
David, Hosanna, which means save now, son of David, meaning this man is the rightful king of Israel. He is the promised Messiah because that's who the Messiah was to be, a king. The disciples were excited. Everybody's excited. It looks like any day now, Jesus is going to reveal his plan to overthrow the Romans and to establish his kingdom. How's he going to do it? Well, they don't know. You know, a few days have gone by. Jesus hasn't said anything. They're curious. And so on a Wednesday night, they get together and they're going to have their big Passover meal. So they gather together in this upper room, this rented house, and they gather together. And during the meal, Jesus starts to speak. And they must be thinking, okay, now is going to be the time. He's going to tell us what's his plan. What's he going to do? This must be it. He's going to tell us how, what he's going to do and, and what, what our jobs are in this and how he's going to become king. And so Jesus begins to speak. And here's what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you is going to betray me tonight. And they say, wow, that's not good. That's terrible. That's awful. But it's not completely uncommon. And it's not really completely surprising. I mean, everybody opposes some king, right? And so, so surely that's, that's a normal thing. And Jesus is going to come up with a plan to overcome that, right? He's not going to let this bring him down. He's going to still take his seat on his throne. Jesus is tougher than assassination attempts. And then Jesus told them something else. He said, in just a little while, this phrase that he uses four times in this one talk, in just a little while, I'm going away and you're not going to see me anymore. And Peter said, Lord, wherever you're going, take us with you. I want to go wherever you're going. And Jesus said, no, actually where I'm going, you can't go uh, because I'm going to my father. And they're like, what, what, what? This is not how it's supposed to work. This isn't the plan. This isn't what we, what we got on board with, Jesus. This is terrible news. And Jesus told them, don't let your hearts be troubled. This is the way it was always meant to be. I, I've tried to explain it to you, but you never really comprehended what I was saying. See, this is the way that my kingdom is going to be established. I know it seems like a tragedy to you right now, but understand that it's not. This is what I've been trying to tell you all along, but you never really listened. I'm going to the Father, and I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. I'm going to come again, and at that time, I will take my throne then. And he told them, I know that this is hard for you to believe, comprehend, understand right now, but, but check this out. It's actually better for you if I go away, is what he told them here. He said, if I go away, here's why it's better, because I will send you a helper. I will send you the Holy Spirit. You know him because he has been with you. But when I leave, something new is going to happen, something different. He who has been with you, the Holy Spirit who's been with you, is going to then be in you. And he's going to lead you, and he's going to guide you, and he's going to remind you of all the things that I taught and told you. And he tells them there in chapter 16, verse 22, where we began reading today, A little while longer, and you will see me no more, and then a little while again, and you will see me once again. And they're totally confused. They're like, wait a second, didn't he just say that he's going away to his father and then maybe, you know, at one point he's going to come back and return for us? Is this the same thing or is this now something different? What does he mean by a little while? They're confused. And Jesus says, look, I can see that you guys are confused. So here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to trust me on this one. See, right now, here's what's going to happen. Over the next couple days, you're going to have great sorrow. But that sorrow is going to give birth 
to exceeding joy. And the greatness of that joy will completely, not only overshadow, it will completely transform the sorrow that you have and it will transform it into joy. And when you get that joy, nothing and no one will ever be able to take it away from you. Here's what's important for us to understand in this. This message, it wasn't only true for those people back then. It's also true for us today. See, I don't know about you, but I know about me that I experience sorrows in this life, and I'm guessing that you do too because we're human. We experience pain and hardship, sadness, even sometimes crushing disappointments. But there is a hope that is available to us in Jesus through the gospel, which can give us a joy that is so powerful that it will overshadow the sorrows of this life. So what is this joy? Let me give you some characteristics of it. Number one, and this is the most important, joy is the buoyancy that comes from delighting in the gospel. Let me say that again. Joy is the buoyancy that comes from delighting in the gospel. Let's just break down that phrase and consider what that means. What is buoyancy? Well, if something's buoyant, of course, that just means that it floats, right? If something's buoyant, it floats. Uh, it doesn't sink. I was just in Florida last week, and we went to the beach a couple times, and uh, they're on the beach. We're on the Gulf of Mexico, and they're on the beach. They have these buoys out in the water so that, you know, the boats and the jet skis won't come too close to the shore and, and endanger people or endanger running uh, up on the shore. And so one day when we were there, you know, the usually very calm uh, Gulf of Mexico, there was this big storm that came up. It was very windy. And, I mean, there were pretty big waves. I'd say probably 10-foot waves on the, uh, on the shore there on the Gulf of Mexico. But here's what's interesting. Those buoys, they're, they're not light. They're very heavy. And yet, they never sink. So no matter how big the waves get, they stay on top of the water. They never sink. They never get taken under. Even when hurricanes come, as, as they did, tropical storms, even just a couple months ago, those buoys stay above the water. And that's what it means to be buoyant. That's what it means for us to be buoyant. I mean, think about that. What would it mean for your life to be buoyant? It means that when the big storms of this life come, when the waves crash against you, they don't take you under, but you're able to stay afloat. They don't sink you. And that's what joy is. It's the buoyancy that comes, that unsinkability which comes from delighting in the gospel. Notice I use the word delighting in the gospel, not just believing the gospel, because I think it's one thing to believe that the gospel's true in theory, right? To kind of nod our heads or assent intellectually and say, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, I can connect the dots. It all adds up, and I guess that must be true. That's one thing. But there's another thing to delight in it. See, to delight in it is to exult in it, is to rejoice in it, is to apply it to your life that it's not just true, but it's true for you and you celebrate the fact that it is true for you in all these different areas. And, and the question is this again. So we're delighting. It's a buoyancy that comes from delighting in the truths of the gospel. So again, let's talk about that just because I don't want to assume anything. I hope you know what the gospel is, but if you don't, I just want to tell you what it is. And even if you do, I want to tell you again because I think we need to hear it over and over. The gospel, that word gospel, literally means, it just means the news that brings joy. We call it the good news. We call it glad tidings. But here's what it means. It means the news that brings joy. See, the gospel isn't good advice about what you ought to do or what you need to do. It's not a checklist of things that you have to do. That's not what the gospel is. What the gospel is, it is the good news about something that has been done for you. In other words, it's in the past tense. It's something which is in the past. It's completed. It's finished. It's a news report. I'm just telling you what happened. 
That's all. It's the gospel. I'm telling you what happened. This is what happened. That God, because of his love for you, he looked at you and he took compassion on you. Even though you have fallen short of his standards, even though we have been rebels, even though we have oftentimes gone our own way instead of following his way, even though a lot of our problems are self-inflicted, in spite of that, God looks on us with love and compassion and he comes to save us. Do you know that? That Jesus came to you to save you. That's what... As we look back at Christmas, that part of Advent in which we look back to the first Christmas, we're remembering the incarnation. That's just a theological word that means that God took on flesh. That God became one of us in order to save us. And, and not only did he become one of us, but he lived the life that we should have lived. Paul puts it this way, that Jesus, in his body, he fulfilled all of God's righteous requirements on our behalf. And not only that, but he also died the death that you should have died. He took your sin, he took your place in life and in death in order to make you right with God. And then he rose from the grave in order to make a way for you to be saved. That's the good news. That's the news that if you really understand it, it will fill your heart with joy. It will give you that buoyancy in this life. See, that's what Jesus is promising them. They don't realize it yet, but soon they will. Jesus is going to be crucified, but then he will be resurrected, and then he will go to the Father, but one day he will return and he will make all things right. And see, when you delight in that, in the promise of the gospel, when you delight in what he did for you, in his life and death and resurrection, when you delight in the hope that you have because of the eternal kingdom which is to come. See, if you reject the gospel, you face utter despair and hopelessness. But when you embrace and you receive this gift by faith that because of what Jesus did, you can be right with God. You can have a new identity and a new future. When you do that, when you trust in that, when you embrace it, when you receive it, it gives you a buoyancy that nothing can ever take away from you. And if you have that, then no matter what this life throws at you, it won't sink you. It won't take you down. Here's another thing about this joy. This joy is an attribute of God. Did you know that? That joy is an attribute of God. See, when you ask the question, what is God like? The answers you give to that question, those are called attributes of God. So we immediately think of things, when we think about what is God like, we think of things like, well, God is powerful, right? And we think that, okay, God is powerful, God is all-knowing, God is loving, God is merciful, God is just. But did you know that this one also needs to be in that list? That God is joyful, God is joyful. This is one of his attributes. Throughout the Bible, God is described as being full of joy. Let me just give you a couple examples. In, in Proverbs chapter 8, it talks about God's divine wisdom. And, and there it talks about, it describes how God created the earth. And it describes God as being rejoicing and full of delight. As he's creating the world, it's just the outworking of the joy that he has. It's the overflow of the joy and happiness that is intrinsic to him. And it says that as he looked at mankind, as he created them, he was delighted. And the word that it uses there when it says that he delighted in seeing mankind, it says that when he created mankind and looked upon them, he delighted. And the word that's used there literally means that he frolicked. I, I would do a demonstration up here for you, but I'm not even sure. I remember how to frolic. I'm not even sure when the last time I frolicked was. I mean, when was the last time you frolicked, right? Maybe, maybe that's your task for this afternoon is to try frolicking. Maybe just do it when no one's looking. But uh, here's the picture we get of God, that he's so full of joy that he frolics. 
And in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, it describes Jesus as being anointed with the oil of gladness above all his companions. It means that he was the happiest guy in town. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, it says that God rejoices over his people with singing. So joy is an attribute of God. It is God. It's who God is. He is joyful. And here's what's really interesting. There's this thing which is called, uh, in, you know, kind of theological terms is called the communicable attributes of God. Now that's a really not exciting name for something that actually is pretty exciting, okay? So the communicable attributes of God. Let me tell you what that is. Um, Here's what it means. It means that there are some of God's attributes that you and I will never have, right? Like you and I will never be all-knowing or all-powerful, right? No matter how, how close we get to God. But there are other attributes of God which we can catch Like, as if we're in relationship with him, as we're in relationship with him, they will actually rub off on us. See, that's what it means. Like, when you think about communicable attributes, think about it in these terms. Think about it like communicable diseases, right? Like, so for example, um, communicable diseases are those diseases which can be passed on from one person to another. And so think about me and my wife. Like, if my wife and I are in a good, healthy relationship, then I will catch every single sickness that she has, right? Like her germs will be my germs and vice versa. If our relationship is good, then that will happen. But if our relationship is not good, right? Like if, if one of us is sleeping on the couch and, and we're not, we never talk to each other, then if she gets the flu, I'm going to be totally fine, right? Like, no worries there. I'm going to be fine. I won't get anything that she has because I'm not in close proximity to her. But if, on the other hand, our relationship is healthy and good, then her germs will be my germs, and I will get every communicable disease that she has. Now, that's the same way we think about it with God, right? Except for instead of the flu, we're talking about joy, right? Like, if you have a good relationship with God, then you will catch some of his communicable attributes. And so what are the communicable attributes of God? Well, there's an excellent list of them given in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, where it says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the attributes of God which rub off on us, which we can catch from him as we are in proximity to him as having a relationship with him. And so one of the ways that we get this joy is in an ever-increasing way is by being in an active, dynamic relationship with God. Here's a third aspect of this joy. This joy overlaps with sorrow. Joy overlaps with sorrow in this life. See, what's the opposite of joy? Sadness? No. The opposite of joy is not sadness. I'll tell you what it is in a second, but, but that's what some people think, right? They think, well, if I have joy, then I won't be sad anymore. A lot of people make the mistake of assuming that, hey, if I give my life to God, then he'll give me joy, and that'll mean that all my pain and all my sorrow will go away, and I won't be sad anymore. I'll always be happy. But again, I want you to understand, that promise is never given to us here in the gospel. Jesus explains this here in verse uh, 21. He says, it's like a woman giving birth. She has incredible pain as she's giving birth, but when the child is born. She doesn't remember the anguish because she's overcome by joy. Now, I've never given birth, but I've been present. I know you're not surprised to hear that, but I've been present at the birth of three of my children. And you know what I always tell my wife is I say, those were some of the hardest days of my life. Like, it was exhausting taking her to the hospital and then waiting for those kids to be, you know, waiting's terrible. 
I hate waiting. I'm always like, it was so exhausting. At one point, I remember when she was giving birth to our first son, uh, you know, I mean, it had been going on for hours. And I was just like, I was kind of starting to fall asleep. And I actually, at one point, I fell asleep and I kind of fell on her. And she did not really appreciate that because, you know, she's trying to give birth to our son. So, uh, but there's one thing uh, that I know, you know, she doesn't think that's funny. I tell her that all the time. Man, that was exhausting. I hope you never have any more kids. But here's the, here's the thing I noticed, uh, that for her, even after the babies were born, the pain wasn't over, right? Like, she still had cramping and pain. Like, her body was still in pain. And yet, right, she has this joy and this relief because the babies come out, but she still has pain. Like, it didn't just, like, stop. And, and this is what Jesus says. He says, that's a picture of what it will be like for you as a result of my death and resurrection. He says, in this life, you have pain and you have sorrows, but you will also have joy in the midst of it, which will be even stronger than the pain. That's why Paul the Apostle, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says that to be a Christian, he describes it like this. He says, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And what that tells us is that these two overlap. They aren't mutually exclusive. It isn't that if you uh, have this joy, you will never have sorrows. But it is to be sorrowful and yet rejoicing with a joy which is stronger than that sorrow. Some of you have experienced that firsthand. You've experienced things that are crushingly sad. You've experienced great loss. You've experienced crushing disappointment. And yet you have this hope because of the gospel at the same time, which is this well spring this source of powerful joy in your life at the same time. See, the opposite of joy isn't sadness. You know what the opposite of joy is? Hopelessness. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. And what the gospel gives us is it gives us incredible hope, a hope that is the source of joy even in the midst of pain. Here's the fourth thing, and then we'll move on to our next point. But the fourth thing about uh, this joy is that this joy is bigger than any of your circumstances. Jesus says in verse 22, You will have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will be able to take that joy from you. So this joy Jesus is talking about, it is deep, it's lasting, and it's stable. It doesn't just come and go as your circumstances change. It, because it is fixed, it is solid, it is anchored. It is something that is done and finished and unchanging what Jesus did for you. So we talked about what this joy is. Now let's talk about what this joy does. Number one, this joy overcomes sorrow. The joy that we have as Christians we talked about it a second ago. It overlaps with sorrow. But here's what I want you to know. It doesn't just coexist with our sorrow. This joy that we have as Christians, it doesn't just coexist with our sorrow. It does more than that. It is so strong that it actually overcomes our sorrow. Jesus says in verse 20, he says, I'm going away. You will see me again after my resurrection, is what he's saying. And then your sorrow will turn to joy. He says, like a woman, verse 21, who gives birth to a baby, she experiences incredible pain and then experiences even greater, more powerful joy. See, the kind of joy that makes a mother say, let's do that again, right? Like how many, how many people would go through something that painful, that excruciating, and then... They would come out on the other side. Who would subject themselves to something like that, knowing what it's going to be like, and be like, all right, let's do it again. Why in the world would you do that? Here's why. Because the joy is so much greater, and it lasts so much longer than the pain did. 
See, real Christian joy is joy that overcomes your sorrows. I heard one person describe it like this. He said, you know, in your house, you have a furnace, and that furnace is attached to a thermostat. And when you open the door in the winter and a bunch of cold air comes rushing into your house, what does that cold air do? That cold air trips the thermostat, which then kicks on the furnace, which then roars into power and fills your house with hot air. So in the same way, he said, in the life, in the heart of every Christian person, there is a furnace of joy. And when sorrow comes into the heart of a Christian, like that cold air rushing into the house, what it does is it trips that furnace. It trips the thermostat, which kicks on the furnace of joy in our hearts. And so when sorrow comes into the heart of a Christian, here's what it does. It causes you to turn to God once again. It causes you to dig deep again, deeper into the hope of the gospel. And as you do that, it kicks on that furnace of joy, which comes from the hope of the gospel. And joy rises up and overwhelms the sorrow. So see, a solid Christian person is not a sorrowless person. A Christian person isn't a sorrowless person, but a person who has a furnace of joy in their heart. And when sorrow comes into their life, they're able to tap into that joy, which overwhelms their sorrow. In Romans chapter 5, uh, Paul says this, that we are able to have joy and sorrow at the same time. And he says the reason is because we have hope. That's why we can have joy even in the midst of sorrow. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, and apparently some of them in their congregation had died. Some people had passed away, and they were grieving the loss of friends. They were grieving the loss of loved ones and family members. And Paul writes them, and he says this. He says, I don't want you to be unaware about those who have fallen asleep, which means those who have died. He says, as Christians, we do not grieve as others do who have no hope. That's an interesting phrase because it tells us two things, right? It tells us on the one hand that it's okay to grieve, that it's, it's normal and healthy to grieve, that as Christians we still grieve when something's sad, when something bad happens. We grieve loss and we grieve bad things. But as Christians, here's the other thing it tells us, that we grieve differently than other people do because of the hope that we have. See, as Christians, we have this incredible hope in the future. Like Jesus told his disciples here at the Last Supper, I'm going away, but I will come again. And when I do, I will take you with me. And where I am, there you will be also. We have this incredible hope of the kingdom which is to come in which all things will be made right. All the things that we look at in the world and we say, that may be how it is, but it shouldn't be that way. All of those things will be set right in Christ in that kingdom. And so for Christians, what we do with our grief, I love this picture that I heard this week. This person said, what we do with our grief is, grief is that we, we rub our hope into our grief the way that you rub spices into a steak, right? Like we rub our hope into our grief the way that you, maybe a better picture, the way that you rub a healing balm into an injured muscle, right? We rub our hope into our grief in that way. And so when the cold air of pain and hardship comes into our lives, we don't just kind of stoically pull ourselves together and act tough. No, what we do is we draw near to the Lord. We cling to him all the more. We dig deep into the hope of the gospel and that kicks on that furnace of joy that we have in Jesus and it causes joy to overcome the sorrows that we feel. Here's the last part of this. This joy, here's the other thing it does. It makes you bold. Notice how Jesus ends this section, verses 23 and 24. He says, the result of knowing this joy will be that you become bold. And he says, the way that, that will manifest itself in your lives is that you will begin to 
boldly approach God and ask him for things in prayer. And God will give you what you ask for, he says, and that will result in even more joy, right? Just this cycle of increasing joy. So this joy we've been talking about, one of the things it does is it makes you bold. We see that with Jesus himself. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it tells us this, that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the suffering of the cross. In other words, Jesus had a joy that kept him going even in the face of difficulty and hardship and pain. Jesus had a joy which made him bold to do the thing which he knew he, God had called him to do and to go on with it because he had a joy that made him bold. We see this with Jesus' disciples as well. When Jesus is arrested and crucified, what happened? They became very scared. They became very timid. I mean, to the point where Peter is confronted the night when Jesus is being tried and someone says, hey, I recognize you. You're one of Jesus' followers. And he says, no, I don't know the man. I've never met him. And he denied him three times. One of the times it was to a little girl who asked him, right? And then what do we see next? We see the disciples. Only one of them shows up when Jesus is hanging on the cross. The apostle John, everybody else scatters. And the next time we see them, on the day when Jesus rises from the dead, where are they? They're hiding in a room behind locked doors because they're afraid that what the people did to Jesus, they will also do to them. And then we see this incredible transformation. Jesus is risen from the dead. They see him. And then something completely changes. These people who, who were prior to this, they were, they were so afraid. They were so timid. They were denying Jesus and hiding behind locked doors and not showing up even at his greatest moment of sorrow. Suddenly something's changed in them. And these people who were so afraid suddenly become very bold. Their sorrow turns to joy and that joy results in boldness. And from that point onward, they're no longer afraid, right? They're no longer afraid of the same crowds that they were hiding from before. They're no longer afraid of the same authorities that they were hiding from before. They boldly go out and they proclaim the hope that they have in Jesus, who he was and what he did. And when they're arrested, when they're persecuted, what do they do? They rub their hope into their pain and they keep on going. Because they were able to say what the psalmist said, that the joy of the Lord is my strength. See, when you have this joy, it gives you boldness and confidence. The boldness and confidence that comes from knowing that you are right with God, that you're accepted by God, and no matter what happens to you in this life, it can only bring you closer to God, even death, right? Which ultimately will bring you the closest to God. So think about it like this. If you are a person who doesn't have the hope of the gospel, then the good moments in your life right now, that's as good as it will ever get. So you better enjoy it. But if you do have the hope of the gospel, understand this, that the deepest, darkest, baddest moments of this life that's as bad as it will ever get. And so much joy awaits you beyond that. So for the person who has the joy that Jesus is talking about, it makes you incredibly bold. It sets you free to face this life with so much courage without being paralyzed by fear of failure or fear of what other people think or any other fear because you know that, hey, this life is just the prelude to the true story which is about to begin. So that's the joy. That's what it does. How do we get it? J.C. Ryle, he was the Bishop of Liverpool. He put it this way. He said the key to having this joy that Jesus talks about is assurance of your salvation. Being sure that you belong to God, that you are his. That is the key to having this joy. And here's what he said. He said, knowing that the great business of life is settled, that your great debt is paid, that the great disease is healed, and the great work is finished, that is the key to having this joy. The way you get this joy, here's how you do it. By putting your faith and trust, not in yourself, but in Jesus Christ and what he did for you. So let me ask you, have you done that? 
I want to encourage you to do it today. Whether it's for the first time or whether it's for the 500th time, you need to do it today. Put your trust not in yourself, but in Jesus and what he's done for you. Go to him. Embrace the gospel. Delight in the hope of the gospel. Cast your cares on him and follow him. And as you do that, you will have this kind of joy that Jesus is talking about ever increasingly in your life. It will creep up on you in your life, that joy that comes from the hope of the gospel. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this great hope that we have in you. We thank you for this hope that gives us joy. Lord, this morning as we, as we sing this last song, Lord, would you help us to delight in it, to exult in it, to rejoice in it, to not just think of it in theory, but Lord, let it, permeate our hearts and cause us to delight and rejoice and, and to frolic like you do, Lord. Give us that communicable attribute of joy, we pray in our lives, and, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.